introduction. I, I appreciate it. The topic here is called To Hell and Back, Catholicism, the Liberal Arts, and, and Business Ethics. But I want to begin with a quote, a quote from a, a novel from 1859. It's probably a quote that you've uh, read before, either in high school or here in college. It comes from Charles Dickens, and Charles Dickens did get paid by the word. Uh, that's why his novels are 900 pages long. But he began this particular novel, A Tale of Two Cities, talking about London and Paris with some of the most compelling and profound words in any Victorian novel. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. And if you read those words, even if you're young, 17, 18, 20, they must resonate with you at some level because we are in a historical moment here that's causing us a great deal of consternation. Those of us who have been around a little longer see it as a unique epoch and a potentially hazardous paradigm shift. And when you think about it, we've never before had greater access to education in the history of the world, but yet we've made stupid choices. We've never had greater access to wealth, but we've never been greater in debt. When my children say to me, Father, what caused us to get into this recession? How did we get into this particular state given that only four or five years ago everybody was doing so well, I can't help but think of that great epic poem by Dante Alighieri called The Divine Comedy. Because you know that all epic heroes have to go into hell, and that's why it's called the hell and back. Epic heroes have to go into hell, to, to Hades, into the underworld, to gather some information, have this epiphanic moment so they can complete their task in the upper world. And in fact, we are living through a hellacious time. And if you remember that... If you remember that great poem in Canto 3, Dante, in the 35th year of his life, Hebrew scripture says that a man's life is three score and ten, seven years. The 35th year of his life, he's having a midlife crisis. And he lost the right path. And he cried out, can somebody help me navigate the complexities of this world? And his great friend Virgil, his great mentor, showed up and says, I can help you. I can help you navigate the complexities of this world. But first, we have to go through that door over there, the portal into hell. And you know, because you've read this poem, that over the gates of hell were inscribed the words, Abandon hope, all you who enter here. Abandon hope, all you who enter here. And our brothers and sisters who are unemployed right now, 15 or 16 percent who are unemployed or underemployed right now, are feeling this right now. They're feeling that, that sense of despair, right? Despair means away from hope. Gay space literally means that. And he goes through this door and he sees the donate, the dam. And he sees thousands and thousands of umbras, the Italian word. It comes from the Latin word umbra, which just means a, a shadow. And they call them shades. And he goes, how is it that these people ended up in hell? The same question, by the way, that my children ask me. How is it that these people ended up in hell? And Virgil responds with, I think, the most stunning words of the entire poem. He says, these are the souls who have lost the good of the intellect. These are the souls who have lost the good of the intellect. It's this organ that got them in trouble. And it's this organ that got our country into trouble, economically speaking. So today we're going to talk about the good of the intellect, the way we think and relate, because the way we think and relate creates a culture. And that culture, for better or for worse, is going to enhance or detract from our material and spiritual well-being. 
And as you are about ready to, to embark on your great adventures, my, my driver tonight was very nice, a senior I sat with, Jared, Joseph, and Emily, is that right? And, and people writing their, their, their student papers and moving on into the, to the new world. There are questions. The good of the intellect. And, and I'm, I'm delighted to be here because I think our world needs to have this conversation. Because when I look back to find out what happened in the last three years, there's two narratives that are emerging right now in political science departments around the country. One is the greed narrative. I don't believe the greed narrative that suddenly in the last three years people got greedier than ever before in the history of in the world. I don't think that that's the case. Sure, there are pockets of greed, but the, the benefits of capitalism far outweigh any of the negatives associated with greed. I'm buying into the stupid narrative. People have lost the good of the intellect. What do I mean by that? I mean, there's something called an ethical hazard. Philosophers talk about ethical hazards, and in business, an ethical hazard is when we actually provide an incentive for people to engage in unethical or riskless, reckless behavior. We give them an incentive because they have no skin in the game to engage in unethical, illegal, or reckless behavior. Let me explain how this happens. Traditionally, if you're going to buy a house, you have a mortgage. We'll do $100,000 to make the math simple. Traditionally, you were supposed to have 20% down. You had some skin in the game. Well, for a variety of reasons, through a variety of administrations, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac decided we wanted to get more home ownership in this country. It was at 59.9%, it was at 65%, and it peaked at about 71%. There's only one way to do that. Instead of 20% down, you only need 15% down. You only need 10% down. You only need 5% down. We'll finance 100% of your loan. No money down, $5,000 back at closing. Who would do that? Nobody has any skin in the game then. And the value of your house goes down, guess what? You're going to walk away because you had no down payment. If you had $20,000 in that house and it went down by $10,000, are you going to walk away from that home? Not a chance. You still got 20 grand of your money tied up in that house. We actually encourage people to engage in reckless behavior. Well, why didn't anybody stand up and say, stop, this is madness, this is foolishness? Well, let me tell you how a typical loan goes about. There are about eight or nine people who make money off the process. The person who answers the phone, she gets $100. The person who gathers together all your documents, she gets $300. The underwriter gets $1,000. The lawyer gets $700. The bank gets $2,000. The person who, who appraises your house gets $500. They had no skin in the game. They didn't care if the ratio didn't match up. They didn't care if you couldn't, if you had a $50,000 income and you were buying a $500,000, push these loans through, push these loans through, push these loans through. The banks took them, collected them, cut them up into mortgage-backed securities and sent them across the world to places like Kazakhstan and Ireland and Greece, and now they're opening those loans up, and guess what? They're toxic. The value of the loans has gone down. Everyone wants their money back, and there's no money. We've lost the good of the intellect, and it's costing us dearly. And if places like Christendom are going to fulfill their, their greatest contribution to our faith, it's by reestablishing the good of the intellect and going out into the world and being men and women of God. Sure, we need dedicated men and women for the priesthood and dedicated men and women who are husbands and fathers and brothers and sisters, but we need men and women of God who are businessmen and businesswomen and doctors and lawyers, because we can't have our education simply be a diploma that hangs on our wall. If we haven't internalized it and moved it out into the culture, we failed as educated human beings. What do I mean by that? I mean that the Catholic intellectual tradition is one of the greatest gifts 
anybody can give you, whether you're Catholic or not, the Catholic intellectual tradition provides us with a framework for understanding the complexities of the, of the world and helping us stand up in a chaos-filled environment. So I ask this question, what is the Catholic intellectual tradition? I know I'm preaching to the choir here a little bit. You're all products of the Catholic intellectual tradition. It's pretty simple. That the students are creating the likeness and image of God. Jesus Christ redeemed fallen man. That we believe in both faith and reason. Fides and ratio are two wings of the same dove that will lead us to a greater understanding of God. We need to treat individuals always as an, an end and never as a mean. But any Christian will, will concede those points. What does that have to do with the world of business and commerce? Well, the Catholic educational tradition, there's Rembrandt's famous portrait of Aristotle contemplating the bust of Homer. It's not simply for vocational purposes. Your education is not simply or primarily to get you a job. It's a liberal art, not a servile art. We're trying to do something else. Because art, music, literature, theology, philosophy, they all play a crucial role in any complete education. They all play a crucial role in any complete education. So you all know this. So what does this do for us on a day-to-day -day basis? Well, Cardinal Newman said that a Catholic education, I love this quote, is a great but ordinary means to a great but ordinary end. It's ordinary in the sense that we've all gone through this. Your parents went to college. Or maybe not, but your, your children certainly, with thousands and millions of people going to college, it's an ordinary thing to do. But it's a great and ordinary, and to a great and ordinary means, but the purpose is to form a, a philosophical habit of the mind, looking at ends and causes, cause effects, and the, the, the efficient cause, and the final cause, and the formal cause, and the material cause of things, in that the great Aristotelian way. So an education is to get us to think critically. So we don't lose the good of the intellect. Let's flesh that out a little bit again. Again, you all know that vocation comes from vocard. And you all know that occupation is what you do as your, your job, how you make your money. And I've got this picture, this wonderful picture. I hope you can see that. It's of, it's of Aeneas. Uh, and, and, and he's recounting the story of the fall of Troy. And when he's woken up in the middle of the night from his dream, he says, my father, my aged father, get on my back. My son, Ascanius, grab my hand, let us walk through. And he says to Creusa, follow us and let us meet at the rendezvous point, for I first must pick up the sacred relics of my people. And Creusa, of course, gets lost. And he walks through the burning city of Troy, lays his father down on the ground, and places his son right next to him. And he finally understands the, the nature of his task, is to honor the past, to prepare the future while working in the present. Think about that, to honor the past, prepare for the future while working in the present. Well, in epic poetry, we have a name for people who can do that. And the name for people who can do that is a hero. I don't want to be sentimental here or melodramatic, but we need in some way, in some way, shape, or form to become heroic. We need to, in some way, shape, or form, emulate what it is that these people stood for in order for us to move forward to recapture what we're doing in the world. Because almost anybody you talk to says that the, I think it was Hamlet, said the world is out of joint, though cursed despite that ever I was born to set it right. My generation's not doing so well right now. We're handing off a baton in a pretty crazy, mixed up, economically, philosophically, and um, 
socially awkward society. But I've got great hope because there are places like Christendom and schools all around the country that are going to be working to move us toward a better understanding of the Catholic intellectual tradition. Because I think this is a, a pretty interesting slide. It's something that we need to think about because there is a distinction between civilization and culture. And when my clients in business hear this, they, they really get it because the civilization is those things that make life possible. Babies in the room, you've got an average life expectancy of 85. If you make it to 85, you've got a 50-50 chance of making it to 100. Plan accordingly. Could be here a long time. Those things that make our life possible, antibiotics and clean water and sanitation and interstate highways, dental loss, right? If our teeth don't fall off when we're 30 years old, we continue to eat rich and healthy diets. You're going to depend in the room. You're going to live to be about 78, 79. If you're left-handed like I am, take five years off of your life. It's not a good thing to be left-handed in this society. The single healthiest thing a man can do for himself, it adds about 10 years to his life. The single healthiest thing a man can do for himself is to get married. It does nothing for you women one way or another. It's something But marriage actually civilizes human beings. It civilizes men. It does not give us culture. I want to go on the record as saying that right now. But it does civilize us. Because culture is something very different. Culture isn't the what you do. It's the how you do it. So a civilization in business, everybody's going to have some product. Internet service, a car, a loaf of bread, a cell phone. That's not going to get you very far if you don't know how to move those products. Culture makes life worth living. We could all live on vitamins and military ready to eat because of the civilization. Culture is Italian food. It's Mexican food. It's Chinese food. Culture is art, architecture. Those products of the fictive imagination that explore beauty. Culture is baseball. Culture is music. Culture is everything that makes life worth living. But the, the culture and civilization are very different. So with all due respect, I, I received this from your marketing department last week. Well, one of my sons received it. It says, what can you do with a liberal arts education? Now, I understand what you're, you're trying to do here. You're trying to convince people that liberal arts. But with all due respect, I think you're asking the, the wrong questions. Because the answer is you can do whatever you want with a liberal arts education. That's not what's going to separate you, because this is what it is that we do right here, the what. And it's what can we do. I want to make an argument that it's how you do it that's going to be more important. It's the how we think and relate with other people. It's the how that we interface with a hostile world that's going to make the difference. And let me, let me talk about that a little bit, because the, the civilization is important, but we have very little control over our civilization. Sure, somebody could in here and say, you know what, I'm going to, that whole computer thing, I'm, I'm still going to use a typewriter to type my page. You could do that, or you could go back to a manuscript culture if you wanted to. You would just be penalizing yourself in the competitive marketplace, because if your typewriter broke, I got news for you. Nobody there to fix it. Nobody there to fix it. You're, the civilization is kind of beyond your control. The only thing we have control over is the culture, because the culture is how we think and relate with other people. How we think and relate with other people. And of course, you know, Adam Smith in 1776 described an inquiry to the wealth of nations, the modern kind of grandfather of economics. He talked about the invisible hand in the market. He said, you know what? 
We're all self-interested. Of course we are. We have car payments, we have tuition payments, we have things we need to do. But self-interest does not have to devolve into selfishness. Because Smith was very clear that in order for, I'm a big free market guy. I'm a huge free market guy. And here's why I'm a huge free market guy. I'm a huge free market guy because I believe that human beings are creating the likeness and image of God, and that we've got individual autonomy. And those economic systems that best support that individual autonomy and best reflect favorably on human beings are those economic systems that allow us to make decisions and to reap the rewards of our wit, energy, enterprise, and discovery. But the free market has to be free from government intervention and regulation. It has to be free from private force and fraud. That's the part that some people who run the free market don't get. If we don't have ethics, the free market falls apart. If we don't have men and women of character running, the, because the market isn't moral or immoral. The market is a tool. The market is a tool that allocates resources very effectively. We can use a tool for good purposes or bad. In 1860, people sold slaves using the free market. That's an example of using the market in a negative, immoral way. The market can be salutary and beneficial as well. Only if the people using the tool have character. They have responsibility. They understand that it only works if it's free from private fraud or force. Ken Lewis, the other day when the Wall Street bankers were up in front of the senators, it was the most despicable thing I'd ever seen. So the, the big head knockers of each of these major corporations, who are giving corporate America, by the way, a very bad name, they said, how is it that you continue to do this even though you knew it was against all your better judgment and the business principles of your company? And the, found, or the president of Citibank, I think he made $100 million in 2004, said, when the music plays, you got to get up and dance. When the music plays, you got to get up and dance. Regardless of the, of the havoc and the, and the potential for catastrophic economic failure. Now, my clients in the business world are getting this right now. They understand that one ethical problem is going to destroy them. They understand that if they don't get the how, the what doesn't matter at all. But if we turn to the Catholic Church and to one of the most authentic documents that I know, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, you'd be surprised at how little the church actually says about business. The church actually doesn't say that much to us in a specific way about business. And in fact, I had the great pleasure in 1985 of spending a day with then Cardinal Ratzinger in a philosophy class, and he gave an address. And he said, at first glance, it's not clear what the church has to say about business. It's not sure that we should get involved in the world of business in the same way that we don't get involved in disputes between Red Sox and Yankees fans. It's outside of the realm of, it's outside of the realm of faith and morals. But he said, but it isn't outside the realm of faith and morals because at the end of the day, I believe that business is fundamentally a human activity. I mean, I know it's about revenue, and it's about stock price, and it's about, and, and, and it's about growth, and it's about sales, and it's about money and profit. But it's a human activity for human beings with a human dimension. And more and more companies are understanding that it's the human dimension that they have to pay attention to. So you're not going to go into the catechism of the Catholic Church and see a lot of stuff on profits and markets and investments and taxes and the stimulus plan. They haven't said anything about that. In fact, 
This is about the extent of what they're going to say. They said the church has rejected the totalitarianism and atheistic ideologies associated in modern times with communism and socialism because they've seen the devastation that that's right. The next time someone rolls out that old canard, by the way, but well, in the history of the world, the church has been a, a net negative or a, a maybe an even split on how much it's contributed to the world because it killed so many people. In the, in, in the last century, 100 million people plus or minus were killed by atheistic totalitarian regimes. If you think of Hitler's 10 million, Stalin's 25 million, Pol Pot's 30 million, Mao Zedong's 50 million. That's 100 million right there. That's more than never before in the history of the world have been executed or killed in all the, all the wars combined. She likewise has refused to accept in the practice of capitalism individualism and absolute privacy of the law of the marketplace over human labor. That's right. We don't the the laws of the marketplace cannot trump our human dignity. It cannot reduce us to means instead of ends. This is pretty simple. Regulating the economy solely by centralized planning, i.e., Marxism or, or communism, perverts the basis of social bonds. Regulating it, so, regulating it solely by the law of the marketplace fails social justice for there are many human needs which cannot be satisfied by the market. I don't know of any free marketeer that wouldn't agree with that. There are many human needs that cannot be satisfied by the market. The market doesn't say that it can satisfy all human needs. The market says that it efficiently allocates resources and brings money to projects that look like they are going to benefit, be beneficial or successful in the marketplace. It doesn't say the market's going to help you find your wife or be uh, sustained intellectually, morally, spiritually, or artistically. That's not what the market says. So the, the church has given us some general guidelines, but we need, we need to have some specific guidelines on how we're supposed to create a culture. How we are supposed to create a culture. In fact, the patron saint of business, the Catholic Church, doesn't give us many patron saints of business. Believe it or not, the patron saint of business, I should have asked if anyone knew who the patron saint of business was. I didn't know who it was two or three years ago. Simply a guy by the name of Saint Homo Bonus. I guess that just, he's a good man, right? He's a, he's a good man. We really don't know much about Homo Bonus, except that he, he had a reputation for being fair in his dealings with the And then there was Saint Margaret Clitheroe, who was at executed in one of the 40 martyrs of Wales in England during the time of Shakespeare. And she was pressed together between rocks, but I guess she kept the books of the family farm, or they had some kind of merchandise or something going on. So the church doesn't give us a whole number of role models for how to act. How are we supposed to determine if our decorum in the business community is actually in harmony with what the church says or teaches. How, how can we evaluate that? After all, if the music plays, you've got to get up and dance. Well, the definition of an entrepreneur is really interesting because I guess, for lack of a better term, I consider myself something of an entrepreneur. An entrepreneur is somebody who, who works and sees an opportunity and through their wit, their invention, their discovery, and their enterprise, brings to the market a new way of doing things, or a new product, or a new way of seeing the world. The entrepreneurial spirit is very American, and it's, and it's, and it's full of promise. 97% of American millionaires, maybe 98% of American millionaires didn't inherit any of the money. 
They did it on their own, through their hard work and through their initiative and through their, through their enterprise. Because there's only one place in the world where success comes before work, and that's in the dictionary. Every place else, work comes before success. And it's extremely, extremely important in the entrepreneur world that they have to do the successful exploitation of a new idea or a new system, the width or the invention. So the entrepreneur also has a responsibility. And this is what Pope Benedict talked about in his most recent encyclical. Now, he weighed it very carefully. If you've read Caritatis, uh, Caritas and, and Veritate, it's a, it's, it's a perplexing document. It's a perplexing document. The top Catholic theologians who have read it say the same thing because the church is kind of, and we can talk about this a little bit later, but the church has kind of got two ideas about this. And for, for the first part of the 20th century, it was all in favor of the labor unions and the, the rights of the workers and, the, and, 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 and against management. And then when John Paul came in, he saw the, he saw the, the, the disadvantages of a, of, a, of a union, forced union. He became more of a, a free market guy. John Paul became more of a free market guy. And so there's, there is some tension within this document that came out less than a year ago where he's recounting the history of the markets and recounting the history of the Catholic social teachings. And he basically, at the end of it, says this is going to be a question of prudential judgments. Most of what you do in the business world is going to be a case of prudential judgment. Prudence, the queen of all the virtues, according to Aquinas. Right? The queen of all the theo theological virtues. Um, and if it gives us prudential judgments, that opens it up a little bit. So I'm going to try and, and, and make sense of this by telling you a little bit about one of my favorite saints, St. Thomas Aquinas. You know all about St. Thomas coming here. Remember, in 387, the last foreign army left Rome, and there wasn't another one there until 410. For 800 years, Rome wasn't invaded. That's a long time to go without being invaded by a foreign army. But after the sack of Rome, we entered into an 800-year period where the intellectual life of, of Europe was at a low ebb. Aquinas was born in 1225. That marks the point where a trajectory moving forward. And you know that Aquinas synthesized Aristotle. He looked at the Nicomachean ethics, thought that it had validity, thought that it was logically sound, and found a synthesis between the Nicomachean ethics and the, the, the revealed teachings of, of, of the Catholic Church. And you've spent many hours in your classes looking at this. And what I want to do, you know, he said that the world makes sense and we can observe and understand the world through philosophical anthropology and, and all these things. And I was a philosophy major as undergrad. I'm all on board with that program. But I want to indulge you for the next 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and I want to ask you to become like Thomas Aquinas. What I mean by that is I'm going to ask you to take some Aristotle and baptize it and turn it into some useful terms for our Christian life that will help us in business and in our life because there are lots of writings of Aristotle that Aquinas didn't necessarily use in his Summa. And one of them comes from Aristotle's rhetoric. Well, you all heard of the sophists, right? The sophists were those people who went around teaching for money. You got that name for teaching for money. I mean, that extent, all the professors at these tables here are sophists because we're teaching for money. Not very much money, of course, but we're teaching, we're teaching for money. 
Sophia means wisdom. We get sophisticated philosophy, sophomore, sophistry. And they were so proud because they said that they could make the weaker argument the greater. Irrespective of the truth, we can take and make the weaker argument the greater. And Aristotle countered. He said, no, if you really want to be persuasive, in the rhetoric, if you really want to be persuasive, there are three things that you have to pay attention to. And he said it's the ethos, the logos, and the pathos. For centuries, philosophers have written about effective public discourse. This branch of learning is called rhetoric. So if we want to be persuasive Christians, if we want to be persuasive men and women of God in the competitive field of business, let's try this one out, right? The first one is the ethos. What is your personal brand, right? If you had to write a letter of recommendation about yourself, what skill sets are you bringing to the table? What do people say about you behind your back? How hard do you work? Are you there early? Do you have, ethos refers to the ethical character of the leader. Is the leader worthy of our trust? What would make a person trustworthy? Does the leader have a professional appearance? Are they honest, reliable? Sometimes we walk into a restaurant and we say this has a nice ambiance. Has a nice, my, my sense is, oh, it's got a good vibe to it. That's the ethos of the, of the person, right? So the question is, your reputation and performance as a Christian, as a Catholic. How is your personal reputation and performance as a Christian? What are the characteristic attitudes and habits of your Catholicism, right? Define your ethos. Define the Catholic ethos. Do they, do they complement each other? So we have to understand what we are bringing to the table. Why would someone want us on their team? Why are we, in a very competitive marketplace, going to hire you? That's your ethos. What are you bringing? What are your characteristic attitudes and habits? The second one is the logos. And here we've got the page from John. Enarche eho logos, kai ho logos, and pros ton theon, kai theos, and ho logos, right? In the beginning was the word. The Logos is what do you know? What, what value do you have? It's the demonstration of logic and re reason, the type and quality of the evidence of the speaker. Are you factually correct? What is your track record? What special skills do you have? How can you bring value to an organization or to a team? Listen, if you're a senior, you're not a little bit apprehensive about your future. God bless you. Congratulations. But if you are a little bit apprehensive, what is your logos? What is the knowledge of the faith? What logos metrics concern you? What is your level? How do you measure results? How does the church? What can you do to improve your logos? And again, I feel like I'm preaching to the converted here a little bit, but when I go out to talk to men and women at adult education who are 30 and 40, they're just trying to recapture their faith. They have, they're just starting all over, and they're beginning with very remedial books because they want to enhance their logos the same way that someone who's unemployed today might go back to school to get an MBA. Somebody might go back to school to get more training. Because right now, if you're not bringing a skill set to the table, and you don't have a value add in your arsenal, if there's not something in your intellectual quiver that nobody else has, you're hurting your own logos. So the third thing would be pathos. It's an awareness of the audience. Some people call it an emotional intelligence. We get the word sympathos, empathos, and apathos from that word. You know the difference between sympathy, empathy, and apathy. Paying special attention to your audience always yields favorable results. 
So, how are, it's the emotional intelligence. I put a cute puppy up there, so you're all going to go, oh, right? That's, that's, the, that's my recognition of the pathos. It's a cheap and kind of tawdry way for me to go out there and get you feeling well about this slide, right? <laughs> Your emotional intelligence. How are you going out to, to evangelize? How when you sit across the table from a prospective employer or a prospective client, are you communicating with them? Talk. Your integrity. So you got ethos, logos, and pathos. We use these in the secular world of business all the time. I'm asking us also to use it in the, in the real world of our Christian faith. Which of those three areas do you think needs most work? I, I would guess that it's not going to be, for you, your logos. I would guess that the curriculum here is so robust and I have knowledge of it. You're going to come out of here as among the most educated young Catholics in North America. I also suspect that it's not going to be your ethos. From what I can tell and from what I've heard and from what I've seen, you seem like dignified, holy, serious, and authentic Catholics. I think the biggest challenge that you're going to have after four years of a, a close-knit, loving environment where you, you're valued for who you are because you were created the likeness and image of God, I suspect that the pathos is going to be the most difficult for you. That you're going to walk out into a world that doesn't look much like Front Royal. doesn't look much like Christendom. And it's going to shock you and it might scare you. And one of the first things that we do when we get into a situation where we're uncomfortable, we just... Try to act like everybody else so we fit in. And it's hard to stand up and it's hard to be conscientious and, 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 and considerate to your audience, but also keeping your own beliefs and your own faith. Let me, let me give you an example. There's a brand that used to be the best car in North America, right? The Toyota name for the last 10 or 15 years has meant reliability. The Camry is the best-selling car in the world because it was at a decent price and it ran for 200,000 miles and it never caused you any problems. But then they started having... So their ethos was just on fire. The resale value, the products of Toyota, the Lexus. Then something started happening to their logos. The product itself, the accelerator started sticking. People were dying. Right? It's a bad thing to happen. The engineers went in there, they, they, they were fixing, were fixing it. But before they did that, you know what they did? They wrote memos. They sent letters back. People said, no, if you had maintained your brakes, this wouldn't have happened. We found a memo about two weeks ago where the guy goes, I saved us $100 million because I've only got a partial recall. We only got a partial recall on these cars. Well, one other person died, but we only got a partial recall, and it saved us $100 million. Guess what? The pathos went through the floor. The customer reaction was outraged because, I don't know, I, I suspect all of you at least know somebody who owns a Toyota. If you don't own one yourself, you all know someone who owns a Toyota. The customer reaction was horrible, and their ethos has been shattered. The jury is still out on how this is going to, to play. If they find more hidden memos and smoking guns, this could be a disaster for you, Toyota. Remember, it started with the logos. It started with the logos. Let me give you another example. This one is humorous, but not really humorous. Tiger Woods. <laughs> Tiger Woods' logos have not changed. He's got 14 majors, 71 tour victories, $92 million in earnings. 
He's the first billion dollar athlete. There is nothing wrong with his golf swing. He has all the goods, all the logos he needs. Nobody is better at golf than Tiger Woods. So where Toyota's logos fell first, Tiger won the US Open, for heaven's sake, on one leg. He beat the entire world of golf on one leg. But as you know, the logos remain the same, but his ethos has been compromised, shall we say. And he had to stand up in front of the world and in front of his mother and admit to behavior that showed that his entire ethos was a lie. His entire life was phony. The image of him and his beautiful wife and two happy kids was all a lie. It was all a fraud. It was all... He's just lost $300 million in endorsements. And the jury is still out on this, too, because the pathos has been shattered. Nobody knows how the audience is going to react when he goes out there to the gallery the first time he tees it up in a couple of weeks. Nobody knows what's going to happen to him when the first people start booing him, or worse, laughing at him. And I'm afraid that this happens in our church every time a newspaper report comes out about another abuse case. It shatters the public confidence. Every time a high-profile Catholic lay or religious, engages in behavior that is unbecoming of a Catholic, it hurts us all. Because we are in the mystical body of Christ. And I recently had a friend, a very dear friend, he's still a friend, high-profile Catholic, and he made a mistake. Seven kids, pillar of the community. And he, he held his faith out there. And there are people who are joyful because of his fall. And the church is suffering today. The pressure is on you. If you're going to go out there as a Catholic, and you're going to go out there as a mother and a father and a brother and a sister, and you're going to go out there with your medals and your rosaries and your crucifixes, and I encourage it, you've got to back it up. Because people will love it when you fall. People will love it when you fall. And it hurts us all deeply. I take it personally when I hear these stories. And because I get great comfort in knowing that there are men and women of God who have been able to keep their promises. And I go, gosh, if they can do it, then I can do it. Because it's tough. It's hard. It's brutal out there. And if they can do it, I can do it. And then all of a sudden, I go, oh, they can't do it. You are going to have to make sure that your, that your logos always supports your ethos. Now let's look at one more. AIG, one of the largest one of the largest insurance agencies in the world, and they made bad decisions. But nobody really, nobody really said anything about their logos, but they took $160 billion in government aid at the time when all these banks were taking it. But at the same time, they had an executive salary who got $10.5 million, they had private jets, they had Las Vegas junkets, and record bonuses. And all of a sudden, they're tone deaf. They had no sense of the pathos. They were basically saying to the consumers, we don't care what you think, we're doing business as usual here. They weren't listening. They were trying to dictate. And now that company is on a very short leash and it's uncertain what they're going to be. In our Christian life, ethos, logos, and pathos have to be in perfect harmony. If we forget any one of those, we are going to suffer as husbands and fathers and mothers and daughters and brothers sisters. Because corporate America today is getting, a, I think, a, a very bad rap. Some of it's justified. 
The corporate American, the word again, corpus, we get corpulent, corporal punishment, the Marine Corps, a corpse, corpuscle, corporate. Corporation, some people say, is a devil, and some people say it's an angel. I say, you know what? From my experience, it's a collection of individuals who are working hard trying to provide for their families. Have they made mistakes? Yes, they have made mistakes. Have they given billions of dollars away to nonprofits, into hospitals, into I mean, Bill Gates gave $40 billion away to help end polio, and it's going to probably eradicate from the face of the earth in the next 18 months. Those of you who are old enough, my mom and dad tell me stories about the polio scares in the 50s while they're at the swimming pool and had to rush home, and everybody was afraid of polio, unlike anything we know of today. H1N1 was nothing compared to the polio scares that these people went through. But I think it's the word that we don't like, because corporation is just a fictitious legal entity and it's, it doesn't give us a, a, a sense of, of warmth or a sense of esprit de corps or common humanity. I think there's a different word that we can use. I'm going to preface it by saying I went out a couple months ago for lunch with a, with a friend of mine. He's a devout Orthodox Jew. He's my lawyer. He lives in Tel Aviv. And he came over to a event and we sat down and I took him to his favorite kosher restaurant. And I said, Terry, would you do me a favor and bless the food? And he was like, happy to. And he said, oh dear. I said, what's wrong? Because we have no bread at the table. I said, so? He goes, well, in my religious tradition, if we have bread at the table, all I have to do is say a prayer over the bread, and then all the other food groups receive the blessing by carries. He said, since I don't have bread at the table, I've got to start with the crouton or the cracker. He blessed it, ate it, cleansed his palate. And then you go from the, 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 the tomato versus the cucumber to both, and then the leafy vegetable, then the fish. And he's right, it did take a long time. I said, but wait a minute, your religious tradition puts such a great emphasis upon bread. I said, that's fascinating, because my religious tradition puts a great emphasis on bread. He took the bread, he broke it, he gave it to his friends. And I began to think about this, because when my wife and I have friends over to our home, we have them over to, to break bread. A lot of people say it's the best thing since sliced bread. Well, you don't slice the bread with your friends, you break the bread with your friends, with your hands, and you hand the loaf around. And I started thinking about that word, bread, and I realized that the word company certainly just means umpas. It means with bread. When you have people over to your house, your company over to your house, you're having over there with bread. And if I'm sitting at home and I'm entertaining guests and they say, Paul, will you go get me a fork? I'll go and get them one. If they want the cream and the sugar, I'll go up and get them one. If they want more water, every time they ask me to do something, I will go get that for them. You know why? Because they're my company. And if we start thinking about business, not as a corporation, but as a kumpan, it's not about making bread, but breaking bread, if we can start inculcating in our corporate directors a sense of kumpanis, and we can do that using the tools of the Catholic intellectual tradition, because no other religious tradition right now has the vocabulary that we have. You understand that? Most of this is just the vocabulary. No other religious tradition has the rich vocabulary that we have. And if we don't reappropriate that vocabulary and use it to animate our lives and model our behaviors after that vocabulary, it's just so much sand passing through our hands. There's nothing we can share. And so my prayer for you tonight, for all of you, the beautiful students here, is that in your four years at Christendom, yes, you enjoy yourself and spend time at the Residence Candia over in Rome. I spent time there myself and, and learn and laugh and love and play. I saw the rugby team up front. They were just head, toe, dirt, mud. And I thought, 
They're loving it. They're absolutely loving it. You've got to do that. But to be an apostle, remember, there's two steps to an apostle. The first step is that you go to the table of the Lord. That's what you're doing right now. You are at the table of the Lord. And that's the easy part of being an apostle, by the way, because it's all upside for you. You realize it's only upside for you to come here and be nourished intellectually, emotionally, spiritually, religiously. That's all upside. The second part of being an apostle is then to go out to the, to the world and bring someone else back to the table. That's the hard part because you might face rejection. Someone might say no. You might get your heart broken. They might laugh at you. What does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? That's the hard part. So my prayer to you is yes, enjoy these four years. They're four wonderful years. I'm not going to roll off the old cliche and say these are the best years of your life. They're good years. They're not the best years of your life. They, they really aren't. I don't want to burst your bubble, but the best years of your life are ahead of you. The best years of your life are... These are good years, though. Don't waste them. But your future's, your future's better. So, yes, I hope that you enjoy it. You drink from the fountain of wisdom here. You've got wonderful faculty members, a dedicated president, and, and I, I couldn't be happier for you. But when you leave here, that's when it's, gonna, it's really going to take its mark. And however we do it, whether we do it with the ethos, logos, and pathos, or another system, we as Catholics have to stand as shining examples of how faith and reason can operate in this world. How we can make money fairly without exploiting other human beings, without being coercive, or without treating them like means to an end. If we can do that, then we've been successful. And if we can do that, then we've lived up to the true word of Kumpanis. And if we can do that, and your mother and father made wise decisions in sending you here, in sending their money here, and you will go out and renew the face here. Thank you very much. God bless.
it, it was one of these enactments of Congress at the end of the Great Depression that was intended to place a wall between commercial banking and oh, that. speculative investment. And, right. and it was repealed. Um, and now they're going to talk. The problem is, and, and I know enough about this because of reading the Wall Street Journal, traditional banks were in the, in the business of accepting deposits and lending out money at a higher rate of interest and making money. But when they got into speculative lending, they were actually playing with somebody else's money, right? And this is not what the FDIC was supposed to do. The FDIC was supposed to cover the deposits, right? Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. And the banks got this loophole that they could start engaging in more speculative lending, mortgage-backed securities, derivative. These are very complicated um, revenue-generating instruments that I can't pretend, as I said, to, to know anything about it. But I think what banks are going to, what's going to happen to banks, like it happened to the credit card companies, is they're going to be reined in and they're going to be forced to engage in only traditional banking activities, taking in money and handing out loans, and they're going to have to have a separate type of license in order to engage in the speculation, commodity pricing, uh, risky real estate loans, junk bonds, these sorts of things that traditionally weren't part of the banking infrastructure. Yes, ma'am? Would you say, though, that the pathos part is Well, that's a very good question. The question is, can the pathos thing be taught? Now, there are a lot of psychologists who say that it can be taught. In, in fact, corporate America is spending millions of dollars a year on something called emotional intelligence. Emotional intelligence, they, they say that men don't have the empathy gene. This might not come as a surprise to you, but women are more able to put themselves in the shoes of other people quite quickly and feel their pain. Men have evolved, they say, without this empathy gene. And so we're less able to put ourselves immediately in the shoes of other people. And so they've come up with guidelines to see how we can enhance our empathy. So for example, I work with the Federal Railroad Administration. It's 95% men. It's a pretty hard scrabble group. And they haven't really got the memo that integration between the genders is something that they can't do anything about. So they have a lot of problems with sexual harassment and inappropriate comments. So they've gotten this training now where they're saying, in order to enhance their pathos, would I say this if my mother were at the table? Would I say this if my daughter were at the table? Would I say this if my wife were at the table? And if the answer to all three of those is yes, then they can speak. <laughs> that is how they're trying to enhance their pathos, their understanding of the audience, their emotional intelligence. They're trying to help them read body language and that sort of thing. So, I. I I don't know if we can reparent people, but I do think we can we can train them. Now, I make a distinction in, in, in my business between morals and ethics, and some people disagree with this distinction, but I call ethics a, the, the product of the, it's over in a philosophy department, morality would be over in a theology department. I'm not as necessarily concerned about their the ontological status of their immortal soul when I'm talking to a group of businessmen and women. I'm talking about the way they think and relate and how that creates a culture. I don't know if morality can be taught, but I think behavior can, even if it's through a Pavlovian form or through the ethos, logos, and pathos. So I do think that the way in which human beings think and relate with other people can be taught and can be taught in an ethically sound way. But I, I don't know if, if those railroad workers have rehabilitated themselves yet. Yes, sir. I'm curious about your upcoming book, uh, Paradigm Shifts and the Rejection of Machiavelli. Could you uh, give a quick synopsis of, sure. of the 
I have no book, and I hope to have it done in the next six months. The greatest invention in the history of the world, I argue, was the printing press. It ushered in the largest paradigm shift in the history of the world. We moved from a manuscript culture to a print culture. Literacy started out at 5% when Johann Gutenberg took the technology of a, of a wine or an olive press, used movable type. 5% of the population of Bach could read. Took a monk working in a scriptorium in 18 months to transcribe a Bible. Three men working on a printing press in six months could do 1,250 identical copies. Literacy went from 5% to 15 to 20 to 50 to about 60% in 100 years. It changed the fundamental way in which the world operated, and print culture lasted for about 500 years. I'm an unabashed bibliophile. I don't even have a TV in my house. I love books. But the era of print culture has died. Newspapers won't be along for another 5 or 10 years. The Kindles, some of us are still going to hold on to our books. But we're moving to a paperless society, a cashless society. The paradigm shift that I'm talking about is we're no longer going to be able to hide, cheat, steal, and, 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 and subvert normal business transactions because transparency is becoming a way of life. My father once said, what happens behind closed doors stays behind closed doors. There are no more closed doors. Your business knows this. You can't get off the grid. They've got cell phones. They've got emails. They've got your credit card, your GPS. Everybody knows everything about everybody in the business world. So you might as well be ethical because if you're not, they're going to find out anyway. And so the paradigm shift that I'm talking about actually gives us an opportunity to help others because we have the vocabulary for understanding what it means to be ethical and to act with arte, the Greek word excellence. When I was a child, my report card said deportment. Now they have conduct. They're very different terms. So the rejection of Machiavelli means it's not the ends justify the means. It's not keep your enemies close and your, your friends close, your enemies closer. It's not kill them before they kill you. It's not all of the things that Machiavelli says in his book. I think that's a very destructive way of teaching business, but it's the way that they've been teaching business for 50 years. And I think that that's changing as we speak. More and more companies are getting our understanding, they're getting religion in this sense. We can no longer continue to coerce and turn the screws on our clients and our employees and our planet because we'll be punished in the marketplace. So there's a new change in paradigm. It used to be the social responsibility of business was to increase profits. It's been changed to now prosperity planet and people. No company today can continue to pollute like it's 1980. They'll be punished in the marketplace. They've got the memo. They're changing their behaviors. They're doing the same thing about financial reporting and transparency, workers' rights, and so forth. So, um, I'm using the, the, the understanding of a paradigm shift, Thomas Kuhn's 1962 book, Structure, Scientific Revolution, when, when one set of assumptions is replaced by another set of assumptions, Copernicus, you know, the, the, the big um, heliocentric, geocentric, and we're going through one right now. We're at the tail end of the paradigm shift right now. We're moving from a, a print culture to a digital, mobile, and personal culture. My, my iPhone right there has the world's largest library on it, right? Life's an open book test. Everybody has access to information. It's not what you know, it's how you deal with what you know. Everybody's going to have the information. How do you think? How do you operate? How is going to be the most important word as we move forward? And then I hope and pray that our young people, especially at our Catholic schools, are well positioned for this. Because um, there are somewhere between 10 and 12 million Chinese who graduate from college every year who are fluent in English. The world competitive place. Uh, yes, one more. Uh, would you want to say that if, if the principal people had acted differently, then the, uh, the 
financial crisis, even, even if the conditions that they were, were probably not were good. I'm sorry, you're going to have to repeat that. I didn't quite catch it. Well, would you want, would, would you say that had the principals acted ethically, then the financial crisis as, as we now have it would not have occurred? I would say if they acted ethically and intelligently, if they hadn't lost the good of the intellect, because there were some mortgage companies that didn't do this. There were some bankers that, Wells Fargo didn't do this, and they were being criticized. You know what, you're not making as much money now. They go, our portfolio is solid. Here's this housing bubble. It's going to burst. We're going to be well positioned. Wells Fargo went out and bought two other banks as a result of this. Yes, I do think that if somebody would have stopped, stood up and said, we are no longer going to give loan value ratios of over 85%, we're not going to continue to hand out $500,000 mortgages to 50,000, because the next shoe that's gonna drop, we're not out of this yet by a long shot, by the way. The commercial loans are now coming due. The commercial loans are coming due, and if they default at the same rate that residential mortgages defaulted, we are in for a double-dip recession, and it's going to be worse than the earlier one. I'm hoping that's not the case, but the, the jury's still up. We're still at over 10% unemployment. We have a trillion dollars debt, commercial industry. We are one blow up in the Mideast away from $5 a gallon gas, and after this weekend with, with uh, Vice President Biden and Netanyahu, that, did, that didn't look so great. We are one, we are one bad flare up in the Mideast again from having $5 a gallon gas. If we have that, well, guess what? Businesses are going to start laying people off again. Consumer confidence is going to plunge. And I hope it doesn't happen, but there are green shoots of the economy. But listen, uh, gold is at $1,150 an ounce right now. We're printing money faster than the, the, the presses can work. Inflation is going to be uh, a very real issue in the next 18 months. Um, we'll see. But I do think we could have avoided it. To a large degree, if three years ago, the height of the housing prices, some people stopped lending money so rationally. I was just down in Miami. There might not be another crane in the city of Miami for 10 years. They're so overbuilt down there. They might not have to build another condo for 10 years. So there goes the construction industry in Miami. There goes the real estate industry in Miami. There goes the people who do carpet and the, the people who cut the grass. I mean, it's, it's all related. The housing industry moves the, moves the economy. Yes, Jerry. Um, I wanted to ask, uh, going into business, possibly starting and uh, start a company of my own, uh, is what I'm looking at in the next few uh, next 10 years. Um, how can I bring ethical people into my company and, and uh, uh, keep my company ethical? Yeah, it's an excellent question. I mean, how can you start something and if your company has five employees, it's not too hard. I mean, you, you do your due diligence, you ask them questions, the same way that uh, the president has to ask questions of the faculty about it. There was a rumor, I don't know about if this is true, but I heard that 10 years ago there was a, a candidate for an, uh, an academic position here, and you're having the wine and cheese party, and, and they said, so tell me what do you think of new MIT take? What? Don't, don't, don't even know what you're talking about? Well, that suggests something, right? That suggests that you know, if you want to surround yourself with people of, of character, how many times have you been married? What church do you go? I mean, you, you, have, you have simple questions like that. But there was, there's a growing trend in Wall Street right now that says surround yourself with good people. Surround yourself with good people. Run with good people, is what my father used to say to me. Run with good people. Not necessarily the most talented. You don't have to have 1,600 SAT. You don't have to, run with good people. You start something with good people, you can't go wrong. 
But if you start with the premise that I only want people who can maximize my profit, all kinds of bad things can happen. All kinds of bad things can happen. Run with good people. Well, thank you again. God bless you all.